In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was shapeless and void, and darkness crept upon the face of the abyss, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and light was. Though this is the second episode of season two, in which my opening words to you have been the opening words of the Bible, it in no way means that Stories of Symmetry is recycling material, or has exhausted all the literature of the world's anthologies. Rather, it is demonstrative of an idea that we considered way back in The Sacrifice of Abraham and Isaac, which was Season 1, Episode 1, that there is always another way to look at the stories we love, that even when they are so familiar that we can recite them in our sleep, yet, with just a minute change in our approach, they become entirely fresh and open doors hitherto unnoticed. Good morrow, everybody. My name is Ben Laboot, and welcome to Stories of Symmetry, a fortnightly podcast dedicated to revealing beauty and purpose through another look at faith, the sacred, and the stories that unite us all. In 1831, Victor Hugo published Notre Dame de Paris, a novel which has come to the English-speaking world as The Hunchback of Notre Dame. And early in this new millennium, I was told that one had not really read Hugo's opus until one has read it in its original French. For, although the English translation captures the story, it misses the subtle beauties of the original language which, supposedly, make it not merely good, but great. I, too, very much believe that literature is best approached through its original tongue, but I have also come to appreciate the art of translation and the enlightenment that can come from such a version. For example, consider Genesis 1, which I read just a minute ago. The oldest copies of that passage are in ancient Greek and Hebrew, but if you are not a biblical scholar, then chances are that you've only heard the words in your own language. For the English-speaking population, there are scores of widespread translations, each with its own advantages and disadvantages, utilities and shortcomings. The English Standard Version, or ESV, for example, is rather good at exegesis and, within reason, staying true to the verbiage of the original language. The Message Translation, on the other hand, is more hermeneutic, and excels at making the text understandable and accessible to our modern society. When I study the Bible, I tend to pour over dozens of translations across several languages, because with each translation, I deepen my understanding and gain through penetrating insight. Sometimes, just for fun, I like to read the Bible in Latin. And when it comes to Genesis 1, I find that the meter of Latin imparts a poetry that is seldom matched by other translations. After all, the first chapter of Genesis, the creation story, is quite literally a poem, written in Hebrew, that is. 
but in Latin it reads, In principio creavit Deus caelum et terram. Terra altem erat inanis et vacua, et tenebrae superfaciem abissi, et spiritus Dei ferabatur superaquas. Dixit que Deus fiat lux, et facta est lux. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. When I hear these famous words of the Bible, for some inexplicable reason, my mind immediately repeats the phrase in Latin. Now the most common Latin translation of the Bible is the Latin Vulgate, which you just heard. It is the one used by most Latin-speaking churches. But, of course, there are other translations. To my great frustration, however, I just cannot seem to find the translation that I once used, the one that plays through my mind. Of course, it is also possible, if not even more likely, that I am simply misremembering my starry-eyed days as a young discipulos latini. Owing fluid memory or lost translation, it doesn't make a difference. Because when I hear, and God said, let there be light, perforce I respond, Dixit que Deus fiat lux, et lux erat. Today's episode is about those final three words, et lux erat, and the light was. Centered roughly 147 million light years, it's over 10 to the 23 meters, from Earth, is a mysterious entity that astronomers have dubbed the Great Attractor. If you believe in the God of the Bible, then you probably believe that God created not only the Great Attractor, but also the several galaxies that are being pulled in its direction. And one of those galaxies is the Milky Way, which is the home of our happy spheroid called Earth. Perhaps you are one of the select people on Earth who can approach a genuine appreciation of the size of our galaxy, and if so, then you are among a very, very small handful of uniquely gifted individuals. For the rest of us, we can't begin to understand how large the Milky Way is. Of course, we can hear numbers and analogies, and be told that if the Earth were the size of an amoeba, then the Sun would be the size of something else, and the Milky Way some other incredibly large object. Or that if the Milky Way were the size of a jelly bean, then who knows what the Earth would be. But for all the effort, my brain, and yours too, no offense, has no reference point across so many orders of magnitude. The same is true of imagining impossible feats. Maybe I can imagine God speaking a chair into existence, or try to envision Jesus turning water into wine. But how much more impressed am I at the thought of God speaking into existence the sun, the horsehead nebula, or the great attractor. But in the end, creating anything is impossible for me, whether it be a sand dollar or a parallel universe. Where do I begin? How could I possibly wrap my brain around speaking something into existence and creating something from nothing, not having to craft or shape it in any way, but speak, and there it is. 
I like to dwell on the mysterious creative power of God. But to do so, I don't need to think about God's creating the universe from nothing. All I need to do is think about the lamp on my desk. Somebody made that lamp, but whoever it was didn't speak it into existence. Only God can do such a thing. But even better than the lamp itself is the light it provides. For I turn the lamp on, and light is. We know much about light due to the works of Isaac Newton, Carl Gauss, James Maxwell, and other great minds. But in fairness, all they ever did was describe light. Not a single one of them made, truly made, light. Indeed, you can tell me that Humphrey Davy made the first incandescent light bulb. But he didn't make light. He was the inventor of the light bulb, but not the light itself. God is a creator. It's the first thing we learn about God when we pick up the Bible. Page 1 in Hebrew begins, Bereshit bara Elohim. In the beginning, God made. That word bara means to make, to truly create, to bring forth something from pure nothing. And it's the second word. Verily, one can pick up the Bible, read three words, Bereshit bara Elohim, and know something about God. In the beginning, whatever that means, God, whoever that is, created. What? I'm not sure yet, but whoever this Godfellow is, he's making something. The Lord is in the divine atelier, somehow outside of space and time and existence as physics today has learned to describe it. And God makes everything. Every atom and building block of atom, every quantum of energy, every lepton and photon and Higgs boson, time, space, essence, at that place and into vicinages that had not until then existed, was heard the eternal, stentorian voice of God. Let's do it in Latin. Dixit que Deus. And God said, Dixit que Deus, fiat lux. Let light come into existence. Let there be light. And the Bible tells us that light was. Et lux erat. Light is mentioned throughout the Bible. As we have been discussing, it appears on the first page of the first book. But even in the last book, Revelation, toward the end of that account, the author John mentions light again. Recounting a vision God gave him, he wrote about the New Jerusalem, that there shall be no more night there, and the people will need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light. If John's vision is true, then it fulfills many of Isaiah's prophecies, especially when the prophet said, No longer will the sun be your light by day, and the brightness of the moon will not shine on you, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, 
and your God will be your splendor. Now, if we say that Bereshit, called Genesis, is the first book of the Bible, and Apocalypsis, called Revelation, is the last, it should be fair to say that the book of Psalms lies somewhere around the middle. The Psalms themselves are replete with instances of light, and the idea of light against darkness. Take, for example, the 27th Psalm, attributed to King David. It begins, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The same King David, in the famous 23rd Psalm, invoked the idea of God being his light when he sang, Yea, even though I might walk through the darkest valley and beneath the shadow of death, I will fear no evil thing before me, for you, Lord, are with me. Even in the tenebrous dark, even when benighted by shadow, you are all right. You are safe. You are good. There is comfort and strength and courage because God once looked at a shapeless, chaotic void and thought, this needs something, something entirely new. And God said, let there be light. Et lux erat. And light was. But we ask ourselves, what is light? Right off the bat, we can think of light in many different ways. We can think about it physically. We can think about it figuratively. For now, let's take the latter approach and view light not as electromagnetic radiation described by waves of self-propagation, but let's consider light as spiritual illumination. To begin, light is invigoration. That's why it's so difficult to adjust to working nights. Darkness is soporific and makes people drowsy. Light, on the other hand, energizes and stimulates. Of course, there are well-known physiological mechanisms behind this, but those explanations cannot negate the fact that when you awake to the morning sun streaming through your window, you just feel good. Light is also safety and security, as any child with a favorite nightlight can tell you. For with light, one can see the surroundings and gauge the quality of his or her environment. Can I walk with bare feet, or will something sharp be awaiting my footfall? Is there space to move, or am I confined? Who's there? Is that a wild animal I hear, or only the sow of a gentle breeze? You see, when you can see, you know what's going on. You can better understand where you are and what's around you. Indeed, even if you are surrounded by enemies, at least in the daylight you know what you're up against. In mountain caves, once you pass the twilight room, it's dark. Unimaginably dark. Darker than your blackout curtains make your bedroom. Darker than your basement on a cold winter's night. So dark that you can't see your hand in front of your face. It's too dark for night vision. And if you find an animal, they won't have any eyes. In that environment, a good caver knows that one source of light isn't enough. And you don't stop at two either. Take at least three sources of light and vary them. Take some that work underwater some that use batteries, 
some that use fire. Do this because in a cave, light is your way out. And it is no exaggeration to say that light is life. I can go on and on, for there's no limit to the things for which light can be a metaphor. It is hope. It is knowledge. It is strength. It is truth. It is liberty. It is reconciliation. It is guidance. The diverse collection of writings, known as the Bible, is instructive and thought-provoking. Though any reader who has studied it can readily discern its incongruities, contradictions, and human errors, those should not distract us from the worthwhile whole. Nevertheless, we must not become overzealous in creative analysis of translations, of copies, of oral accounts, and find ourselves carried away with assertions that the earth is a cube, or that Jesus and Jonah were one and the same, or any other untenable conclusions. But if we allow ourselves the liberty of cross-reference and biblical algebra and the transitive property, we can begin by noting that the psalmist once sang to God and said, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. And John, when writing his gospel, began that work in the same way that the writer of Genesis began it, in the beginning. In Greek, the language of John's gospel and the Septuagint version of the Old Testament, that phrase, in the beginning, is in arche. For example, in arche ein hologos, kai hologos ein prostonteon. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. A few verses later, about the same distance into Genesis that light is mentioned, John also mentioned light, saying, In the word was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And, if we were to continue reading, we would learn that the word is actually Jesus. Now, if we have fun with the transitive property, we note that John equated the word to light, and also the word to Jesus. Thus, we can call Jesus the light. And later, in the same gospel, Jesus himself corroborated that idea when he said, I am, I am, the light of the world. Whosoever will follow me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light, the light of life. And, of course, light is all that we have previously mentioned. Energy, security, vitality, and all the things into which we didn't yet delve. Let's also return to the psalmist, who called God's word a lamp, that is, a light. And think about that metaphor. I have no idea how carefully the author chose his lyrics, nor how faithfully they've come down to us, but I like to think that he was deliberate in choosing a small source of light. He might have said that God's word is like the sun, or that when he walks with the word of God, it's like walking in bright daylight. Or he might have even said that God's word is like a full moon. Instead, he used the analogy of a lamp. This fascinates me because candles have low candela, that is, they don't have a lot of luminous intensity, or more plainly, a candle isn't very bright. 
If I am walking through a dark wood, my first choice is not a candle, not a lamp. For sure, they're better than nothing, but they don't do much. A lamp does a poor job of lighting the way. Then again, I suppose it's about perspective. For if I am gallivanting through the forest at midnight, it behooves me to see as clearly as possible, and I want to have the same visibility that daylight permits. But if God's word, if Jesus in my life, is a lamp unto my path, then I can only see what's immediately before me. I can only see what's just ahead, my single next step, or maybe two at best. But with a lamp, I really don't know where I'll be in five steps' time, or if I'm going uphill, or if the path will bend, or if there will be a hole, or if the path will simply dead end. As it is, God will light my way, but not my whole way. I won't see my destination, only my next step. And while this is bad for my physical walk through the woods, maybe it's good for my spiritual walk. Perhaps God knows that if we see the entire journey laid out at the trailhead, we'll be too intimidated to step. It's daunting to see the big picture. But, as Lao Tzu said, the journey of a thousand miles begins beneath your feet. That's why a good visionary shares only as much as the implementers can handle at a time. But even more than that, the lamp is about trust and faith that God is taking you to a good place. For this, Jesus says that he will light your way, but only the next step. And only after getting to that next step will the one thereafter be revealed. It's like a lifelong scavenger hunt. I figure out where to go, and I have to go there to figure out the next place. And I have to get to that step before getting to the next one after it. Now, the plot thickens, because we recall that not only did Jesus say that he was light, but that we also are the light. But if God is light, and the word is light, and Jesus is light, is it true that I, somehow, am light too? Yes. Not that we are gods, but the Lord has blessed and empowered us as it is not by our strength or our authority that the mountain jumps, but by the power of God in us. As Jesus said, Amen, I say to you, that whoever shall say to this mountain, Be thou removed and be cast into the sea. And that person, not staggering in his heart, but believing that whatsoever he saith shall be done, then it shall be done. But what about those of us who do now and again, stagger in our hearts, who utter a prayer, truly and sincerely wanting their request to be issued with unwavering faith, but for whom doubt creeps in. I want to believe that God has me, but sometimes, in my heart of hearts, I wonder. Maybe today I won't move a mountain, because although that feat requires little faith, that which is needed must be unwavering, steadfast, childlike. Because when a small child who has yet to be brought low by the world believes that her dad will make it to a her viola recital, 
even though he's on the other side of town with a flat tire, where you or I would look and say, it's not going to happen, that childlike face stands 100% certain that, I don't know how, but dad's coming tonight. That is the type of faith to which we aspire. Not to be naive like a child, but faithful like a child, and accepting of our limitations and concomitant dependence on God, like a child. Jesus told his disciples that they could move mountains if their faith were but stronger. Yet when it came to light, he did not say, you might become light, or you can be light. He said, you are light. And when Jesus said that, he was not addressing only the disciples, but giving a sermon to a large crowd gathered on a hillside. Of that group, hundreds if not thousands strong, was every person there a veteran Christ follower, ready for an advance commission? Or even a believer in Jesus? Certainly not. And yet, and yet, Jesus said to the crowd, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. To all who could hear his voice, whether believer or not, Jesus said, You are light. But I thought God was light. God is. But apparently, according to Jesus, so too were all those people in the crowd. Do they have potential to become light? That's not the question. They are light. But why? What qualifies them? There is but one common denominator for everybody in that crowd. Their commonality was their presence there that day. They all came to hear Jesus speak. They came seeking God. They came at varying capacities. Some were already followers. Some had been chasing after God all their lives and who, when they heard about Jesus, thought, maybe this is what I've been looking for. Some were there out of curiosity or because their friends had invited them or because they were bored. Nevertheless, they all came. And when they were there, they listened. They were all seeking God, and that act alone made them light, the light of the world, a beacon for others, like a city on a hill which can be seen from all around, from far away, like a lamp that brightens the whole house. The simple act of seeking God is enough. It's not the end goal, but it's a great start. And if you're listening to this podcast, then you are light. Some of you are fierce followers of Christ. But I know that not every listener is a Christian. I know that many of you don't even believe in God, and others of you want to, but haven't been able to. Well, take heart, because regardless of how far down the path you've made it, the fact that you are seeking God makes you light, and it brings glory to God, even if you don't think it does. God said, let there be light, et lux erat, and light was. The crowd sought God, et lux erat, 
and light was. You are seeking God, et lux est, and light is. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Thank you for listening to Stories of Symmetry. I'm Ben Laboot, and I want to invite you to the next episode, which will be out in two weeks. You can also keep up with blogs, episodes, and more on storiesofsymmetry.com and on Facebook and Instagram, at Stories of Symmetry. Please also tell your friends about this podcast and share it with those you know. But even if you don't stick with Stories of Symmetry, I encourage you to keep seeking God in whatever way is most enlightening for you. Go with God. Go in peace.